Hello, everybody. Welcome back What's to another up, guys? Facebook live stream of This Would Know. I am Monty. I am Daniel, and welcome today to the single-hosted episode of This Would Know. I am Did, your wait, only wait, host what? for the day. Oh. oh! Oh, did you not get the memo? How did you do that, Daniel? Did no one tell you? What, what about me? <laughs> oh... Yeah, so what you need to know is I have secretly gone behind Monty's back to our imaginary board of directors, and I have... You got us a board of directors, too? Oh, I've, I have so many things, friend. Well, there are... We are... We're incorporated in several different countries. Surprise. Ones? Any, any ones that have universal basic income, please. I can't tell you. I'm not at liberty to say you are not you are not privy to those conversations. Those are close hole only. You, Daniel Kemper, are a tyrant. You're a tyrant. You learned the wrong lessons from Octavius Caesar. I learned all of the right lessons from Octavius Caesar. Thank you very much. Brutus was an honorable man. Daniel Kemper is not. So, welcome everybody. I am your host, and joining me in my solo show oh my as my guest for the evening is an actor, a writer, a director, a producer. He wears many, many, many hats. Oh, and I almost forgot. He's also the founder and the master of the Rebels for a, uh, a little theater company you might have heard of called Root Grooms that operates out of Queens. Please welcome, for the first time on This Would Know, my guest, Mr. Montgomery Sutton. Monty, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Daniel it's been, Kipper. It's great. I know we've talked about doing this for, for so, so long. But I feel so honored to be included on your show. We were really trying to make this happen for a long time. but I appreciate uh, you jumping through all the hoops that my representation uh, made you jump through to make this possible. Oh, absolutely, man. It was, you know, it was my pleasure. You know, this was a, um, it's a small little podcast that I started by myself with just, uh, just an idea. Wow. But, yeah. But it's, it's great to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to be talking to a leader who does everything by themselves and needs no help or other people around them to make I it mean, successful. You know, I just, I really do consider myself something of a, of a self-starter. Um, you know, it's not much, it's just the little bit that I can do to, uh, to make my own individual, singular, solitary mm. impact on well, the world. I just, I look forward to what I, what I learn from your abilities to do everything on your own today. I, I can't wait to see what, how I can take those own lessons for myself sometime in the future moving forward. You know, I just, I, I appreciate you being open to the things that I have to teach you. I think um, I'm excited. I think this is going to be really productive and uh, a real growth opportunity for the for the both of us. Thank so, you, Jedi Master Daniel. You are quite welcome. Uh, so I want to get into – I've actually – so for background, Monty and I have actually known each other for about 15 years now. Yeah. Um, I know. <laughs> it's been a long time. Can we, can we not talk about that? No, we're going to have to talk about it. Um, so yeah, Monty and I have known each other, or let me rephrase it a different way. Monty and I have known each other for almost 20 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, over the course of NYU and postgraduate life, um, coming back together to put this, to put these different shows together and my part in Rude Grooms, 
It's been a real uh, fascinating ride, and it's been a privilege for me to get to know who Monty is as an artist and as a worker and uh, also as a human being. If you've listened to previous episodes of uh, the show, we have alluded to many a drunken conversation where we will sit out on Monty's porch in Queens and sort of figure out the meaning to life. And so I'm actually really excited. All jokes aside, I'm really excited for you all to get to know the side of Monty that I do that is very thoughtful and caring and compassionate and uh, is just a hell of a hard worker. So you you have the right guests for tonight's show. I'm trying to be nice to you, damn it. Will you let me do my thing? I guess it is your show. Fine. You can be nice to me if you want. All right. Um, So, Monty, we're just going to – before we jump into the the nitty-gritty stuff, I want to just get some preliminary background information for people who are tuning in and maybe don't know you as well. So let's start off with the basics. Um, Why are you the way you are? (laughs) Well, I – Why? Why? I do know that I was dropped in the bathroom as a as a baby. Great. Um, I think it's because I and mom and dad. If you're watching, you can tell me if I'm right or if I'd made this up. I feel like I peed in my dad's face, and he didn't mean to, but it made him drop me. So I think. Mm. And again, maybe that didn't happen, and I made it up. But either way, I think that's why I am the way I am. So you basically came out at an early age with a blatant disregard for authority by literally peeing in your father's face is what I'm hearing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. One of the things that I've actually been very curious about, um, having known you for as long as I have, is you always seem to be in motion. Every time that you and I have come uh, like into each other's lives, you are always working on this thing. You're always starting something else. You're running this over here. You're founding this over <laughs> here. And so I'm, I'm actually really, really curious where in your background or your upbringing did that sense of or that need to create sort of come from? I, mean, I think a, a huge amount of it, I think, comes from my from my parents because they were for a large part of my growing up, they would they they would be in multiple jobs at once, or like running their own, um, like one person consulting thing, and then like and their so their amount of work and effort and creation and time with volunteer organizations um, was so immense and like uh, just I, I think you know a, a huge factor, and so I think in a way I I don't really kind of know any other way to be. Um, I also uh I have realized especially in uh in light of covid that like it's also because that's the best way I've found to deal with particularly my anxiety is by feeling useful um and having a responsibility towards other people uh because I'll let myself down before I'll let someone down that I care about um and so being I think a large part of the drive is also like understanding that part of myself in a way it's self-care when you say that um, you don't know any other way to be because that was the example that was modeled for you, that makes a lot of sense to me. But where does where does that sense come from where you would – it sounds like you thrive off of holding yourself accountable to other people mm-hmm. rather than holding yourself accountable when it's when it is just you. So what is it about other people – being thrown into the mix of a creative process that really sort of galvanizes your sense of let's get it done-ness. 
I mean, I think kind of, uh, what I was trying to allude to uh, in the in the last like this idea of I have a proven track record of of letting myself down on commitments, whether that's you know health projects, whatever. Um, but the moment that someone else is involved and the delivery and quality of a thing is affecting someone other than me, that to me changes everything. Um, what about that? What about the addition of even one other person changes that for you? I honestly don't know, man. As a, as a writer, for example, plays that I want to write but don't have a theater that's specifically asking me to do it or uh, uh, something on the line, a date set, and people on the, on on board with the project, I won't ever finish anything. I won't ever finish anything unless there is a a delivery that involves other people. Um, even though, like, I know that a piece of writing could be good and helpful and illuminating or, um, you know, just allowing other people to like see a resonance that helps them feel less alone, whatever. Like, even though that work can have an impact on others, for whatever reason, it still doesn't, I still have a really hard time following through unless there is that like in this creative endeavor, here is a person that is intrinsically involved and if it doesn't get done you have failed them can you pinpoint a time in your creative process where that shift sort of happened or has that always been has it always been that way for you i don't remember a time when it wasn't that way i don't think i became aware of kind of how to hack hack my own brain in that way mm -hmm. until a few years ago i just realized how my brain was naturally functioning and turned it to my own purposes and then, so you mentioned that what really drives you, what really gets you up and focused and working is holding yourself accountable to other people. Yeah. Now, there are a million different ways, because it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what's rooted in that is the desire to be of service to others. Is that accurate to say? Or is there a different way that you'd phrase it? Uh, I, I, uh, I think that's totally accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there are a million different ways that that impulse could go. Why in you did that register as a career as an artist? In a way, I think they're two separate things. I think there there's a, I mean, that old thing that all the grizzled old actors tell you in master classes in drama school, right? Of if you can do anything else, go do it now because you're going to eventually... At some point, it's going to beat you down. I think I make art because I don't really know another way to engage with the world um, than through that kind of reflective creation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that is, but I think that's separate from from the service, actually, because I like, obviously, they're connected in the art that I make, but it's not, I don't think one is because of the other, if that makes sense. Maybe sure. that's an unnecessary thing to draw. The two are the two are sort of separate in their own way. They're mutually exclusive, or not mutually exclusive. Just it's not. Uh, there's not a causal relationship between them. I don't think. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And yeah. then, how long ago? How long have you known that uh, creating art and artistic expression was the way that was your preferred medium to interact with the world? Uh, I mean, I mean, since before I can remember, I know, I know like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those folks that my parents and family will tell stories about all the wild. Oh, vengeance! 
Man! That I was making people do when I was three and making them watch three hour plays that I was doing and making people climb into boxes to play Robin to my Batman and writing. Were you making three hour plays as a three year old? I mean, I think maybe I was four from when I did my first three hour play. Please tell me what a four-year-old writes a three-hour play about right now. Uh, no, it was about Batman and Robin, and I was Batman, and uh, my uncle Robin was Robin, and I all I, I'm, I obviously I don't remember this, but apparently I made him climb into a box, and that that was the play for three hours. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, throw you under the bus to your family real quick. In your three-hour Batman play, who was your Joker? If if anyone if any of my family is watching that does the answer to that, please let me know. Because I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I need to I need to go get some hypnosis, some hypnosis done, and then maybe I can uh, rediscover. Yeah. Blaming blaming your toddler self as the dodge for the question. No, you All know right, what? I, I do see. know. I do know. It was Joaquin Phoenix. He was 14. He was great. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so it's it has sort of been an, an always an always there thing. But people a lot of people that we know have had things that they have enjoyed doing or things that um that give them life or give them joy and they don't decide that they're going to yeah. make a career out of it when did you when did you decide this is what i'm going to do this is what i'm going to do for a living this is how i will make my mark on the world i mean probably like like 7 or 8 there was there was a point at which i didn't know whether i would go to school to be a filmmaker or to be an actor. And then I saw a production of a brilliant play called The Drawer Boy at a theater in Dallas that in one evening proved to me that I had to be a stage actor. That's What I, about that? What about that production made that decision for you? Uh, it felt like going to church. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I, I had a uh, an overwhelming spiritual experience with that show that I don't think I had... The only other time I had felt that was... Um, I got very lucky and get to got to spend three summers in Japan in high school. And the first summer I was there going through um, culture shock and all that, I like was incredibly depressed and like locked myself in my host's house for a few days. Um, and then finally, when I kind of came out of that, they took me to a, a temple, uh, Shinto, uh, sorry, a Shinto shrine. And in this particular shrine, there was a um, like an underground, completely pitch black little path that's like the holiest part of the of the shrine. And as you walk down, when you get to the kind of apex of it and turn through, there's a little hole in the wall, and you reach through and you touch um, the first wooden beam that went into the ground for that shrine, because um, the at least the belief in this temple was that the 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 god of that shrine, or the kami of that shrine, uh, was most the strongest concentration or the, uh, the most, the present, the energy was the most present. Yeah. There. And so the, that, that moment was the first, I would say truly spiritual experience I ever had. And then the second probably was the drawer boy. Um, and, and so I, how old were you when you saw the drawer boy and had this experience? This was senior year. I mean, like in, in college applications, it was like, uh, I, I broke the rules and did two early decision applications. Oh, um, and one was one was for acting at NYU, and the other was for film at UCLA, and then uh, got into NYU first. <laughs> so, oh, that very of, cool. Yeah, but I, I, but before that had happened, I just actually no, that story might not be right. I think I, just, I think I chose not to finish the UCLA application because of the show. Have you thought about? Have you ever given any thought to what your life 
would have been like if it had gone the other way, if you'd sort of like sliding doors your way through and gone to UCLA and done film instead? Uh, I think about it a lot. I actually don't. I think it would have ended up being really similar, to be honest. Interesting. I mean, now I'm still I'm splitting my time between video production and theater making. Um, So I'm doing both of those things as it is. I think I probably would be doing both of those things. It just would have gone the other way around. Um, I got my, I think my, as, as many great things as, as, uh, as we're present at Atlantic, I think that my personal confidence and my personal growth and like realizing the actor that I wanted to be actually didn't begin with Atlantic. It began in the summer after our freshman year. Um, when I got to, uh, play Ferdinand and Tempest for Shakespeare Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the, integ- the, the integration of that stuff with, um, kind of my pre-existing things of like, I already know I don't like this about theater. I already know that I don't like this type of acting or this type of play or this type of actor. And Atlanta, of course, complicated all of that and gave me some tools. But then doing that show was really, I was like, okay, now I know the kind of artist I want to be. And now I can curate how, like the training I want to get and how I want to get there. And so I think I would have probably, hopefully, um, that show would have happened anyway, because it was, I was connected to it through a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful director named Renee Moreno, who, uh, passed away a few years ago. Um, and he had been a, a major mentor of mine in high school and had, um, done some training for me. So I imagine he would have put my name through, uh, for the, for the callbacks for that one. And he, he wasn't directing the show, but he connected me to, um, the director. Uh, and so, I th- yeah, so I actually think weirdly it's one of those life paths. And I think I would have always ended up in New York cause I n- never wanted to live in California. So obviously it would be different in that if, if like this friendship was to form, it wouldn't have formed in college. And so that would be different, but I'm also like so much of it would have been similar that I can't imagine that a lot of the people's paths who are the most important collaborators to me now, I wouldn't have crossed paths with at some point. So I think it would have been a different journey, but I think it, And maybe this is too idealistic, but I think it actually might have worked out to be similar to what we're in now. Different journey, but the destination at the end of the day is all the same. That's interesting. Um, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and this is something that previous listeners, if you've ever listened to an episode of the show before, you've heard Monty talk about this subject. What I find really interesting is that During a time in college where a lot of us as young theater artists are sort of figuring out who we are and what our artistic voices are and really just how to be in the space. But it seems like you came to you came to an advanced level of uh, of artistic practice with a lot of seemingly fully formed opinions already. And so when you say that you knew what kind of artist and actor you did not want to be and what kind of theater that you did not like. Where do those opinions and impressions come from? I was incredibly, incredibly lucky growing up. Um, my parents, though not theater artists themselves, uh, were on the boards for a lot of arts organizations growing up. And so I put, they put me in my first acting class at three at a wonderful, wonderful place called the Dallas Children's Theater that... Um, it was like my second home and, and definitely my second family um, and spent 12 years in, you know, classes, 12 months out of the year there. My school also had a really, really strong drama program and got to do um, some some 
really cool major roles there. Uh, and then Dallas also has an incredible organization called Junior Players that I've talked about on the pod a few times before that uh, does all kinds of, of completely free uh, young artist training from, you know, six-year-olds and rec centers to um, the program that that I got connected to in high school, uh, where it's a, a six-week kind of combined Shakespeare conservatory and essentially high school cast professional production that's co-produced with Shakespeare Dallas on the stage the week after their summer season closes. Um, so I just got an incredible amount of, uh, of exposure to great artists and great roles. And, um, that I think the, the, the massive privilege of that, like just meant that there was so much coming at me. Uh, and I had so much exposure that I didn't, by the time I realized what I liked and didn't like, I had had so many different viewpoints, uh, helping to guide me and inspire me that I don't think it was, um, like regurgitating any particular point of view, if that makes sense. Like sure. the, the amount of ingredients that have been thrown into the pot, I think allowed me to come to, to something that was truly my preferred type of performance. If that makes sense. And so what are, what are some of those ingredients in the, in the world of Monty Sutton? What, <laughs> What makes a good or even, dare we say, a great actor? What makes a competent artist? The qualities that make you the actor that you are, right? Like the, the qualities that make... You're not getting out of the question no, no, by no, no, complimenting no. me. No, I'm saying, I, think, I think it's very difficult for me to, to list like the qualities that that is. I just know the people that it is, right? Like, and we are so lucky to work in this company where we get to work with purely artists that we love and respect the hell out of and are incredibly inspired by. Um, and also to be able to be in like in the re massively incredible and privileged position of putting together companies of artists that we love and being in those companies with them. So I think like it's honestly, it's just an easier answer for me to be like, look at the people that work with Rude Grooms and that tells you the art that I love because those are the, the artists that I respect the most. Um, and for the, well, for the people who have not yet come to see or had the chance to see any of our work, what are some of the, what are some of the qualities of those actors? Well, I would say then go to shakespearehappyhours.tv and you can see a lot oh, of those people. <laughs> Dude, I'm here to plug, man. I'm here to plug, 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 plug. I'm just like a, <laughs> just like a battery charger. Um, no, the, what are the, qual the qualities are playfulness, uh, a focus on, the other scene partner and the audience rather than on their own experience of a scene, emotional honesty and surprise rather than performativeness, committed messiness that's real, the nasty, the surprising, the spontaneous, the irreplicable. Um, I don't, I don't like, oh, this isn't fair because these, those qualities can happen in a, in a, a show that runs like clockwork, right? It's hard. We, we've talked like, I think Harry, Harry, uh, Waller did a great job of, of talking about how, you can find all of that in a tiny moment, right? If you're completely blocked, you can still find that in how you turn your head to the left every time, right? Like that. Um, mm. So I, I, I love the art most where it is apparent that it can't be replicated, right? So, um, you know, watching any of, any of Rylance's shows at the Globe or any of the, the new work that's happening under Michelle Terry um, are, our friend Colin Hurley is like, like that type of, wow, you have no, you literally don't know what's going to happen on a given night. And you can feel that 
watching the show and you know that you're a part of you're a part of a singular moment of creation that is only possible because you're there and it's only possible because it's happening in this moment you know, if the show runs for three years it will never really be remotely similar that is that is what i love the most so something that you just mentioned that i want to sort of get into you said that one of the things that you value is uh emotional honesty even if it's messy versus performativeness and i feel like there are a lot of this is a conversation that happens in a lot of uh artistic circles we all know people who sort of have their their actor tricks or the things that the the bag of tricks that they can pull out of the tried and true skills or techniques that they can do um, that always win, that always win over a crowd. Yeah. Everybody's got, if you think of, if you think of some of the most commercially successful actors working now or who have worked before, everybody sort of has their thing. Can you explain in your own terms what the difference is or how people can tell the difference between emotional honesty versus theatrical performativeness? How can how can you recognize the one from the other? Well, so f- first I'll say I don't I don't I don't truthfully know that you can right because it's entirely possible that someone's quote unquote honest response reads as fake to you right like human. So then, what does that's fair? So then, what does that mean to you? To me, what it, again? It kind of go back to that idea of is it myopic? Is it self focused? Right? Is this an expression? of an emotion that the actor feels like should happen or is it something happening while they are doing something? Does that mean like, um, are you, are you telling me that you're sad or are you doing something? Are you playing a tactic and something comes up through you? Anya was saying in, in our first year, I remember her being like, uh, she said that she said this to me. I remember like the fourth week she was like, you're really good at faking what we're asking you to do. Like mm. I almost can't tell until like three minutes have gone in. And then I can tell. So stop that. (laughs) (laughs) But like, and I think there are people who are, who are just, who learn that skill set, which is frankly at this, like, I I don't know that I have the, frankly, the, the work ethic or the focus to be able to be that type of performer and to like calculate and curate a, a performance. Maybe, maybe that's the better way to say it. Actually, I think a calculated curated performance to me reeks of performativeness. Whereas, a performance that it's why I think, I think messy is a really important word to me actually, because um, it's like uh, you ever heard the Toni Morrison quote about the job of rewrites is to make it sound like you're, you're writing for the first time. Oh, I didn't, but that's great. Um, I think it's so beautiful. And I think it so applies to acting as well. Like the, the job of rehearsing is to make it look like you've never done it before. And so maybe that's the difference of like, if I see that you are highly choreographed, that has that, I am an excellent artist who does my excellent thing excellently every time, that kind of quality to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So then my other question uh, to that then is, how do you keep it from becoming stale or becoming rote? If if you've been in rehearsal for four to six weeks and you are doing a six-week run and you're on performance number 15 – and you know the major beats of the play now. You know the major beats of the play. You know the rhythms that are going to happen with this particular company. How do you avoid the trap of making it feel stale? Actually do the thing. Actually ask the question. Actually try and get actually try and get something from this person. 
Um, and if you're actually doing that, it will never be the same journey twice. So it can't be stale. Explain what that means for people who may not be familiar with practical aesthetics. So like the idea of, and I guess, I guess in many ways, practical aesthetics is, is one of the like, uh, post Stanislavski inside out type, uh, type approaches to acting of don't, don't concern yourself at all with what something looks like, uh, or what the quality of a thing comes off as how something sounds, how something looks, um, just read the text discover the, you know, the basic Stanislavski stuff, right? What is literally happening in the scene? What's your character want? It's the essential nature of that action and then fighting an as if for it. And I feel like that, and as if being like an imaginary circumstance from your own, uh, an imaginary circumstance from your own personal life that connects you to that essential, uh, the essential nature of that action. There's all kinds of ways of looking at it, but things that set up a way of playing rather than a way of delivering. Following up on that, with this spirit that you've tried to infuse into rude grooms of um, keeping it messy and emphasizing an environment of play and discovery, when you're in a position where you have to act or manage a show and you know that, yes, we want to explore and yes, we want to play, but also we have to put up a production for people. How do you know as a person in charge, when it is time to enforce some structure on the sense of play? How do you know when it's time to put rules in the playground? A, if and when people ask for it. Mm-hmm. I think if actors ask you for something, it's because they need it and want it, and then it's sure. helpful. Um, or when there's a clear when there's a clear a clear struggle. If someone is having fun, playing boldly and bravely, coming through clearly then I tend to not really want to get in the mechanics of that. If someone feels like they're a little bit restrained because they're maybe less confident in what the text might be in that scene or in the things that that character is asking for them versus what they usually play. If there's that kind of slightly held back feeling to it, I I often Mm -hmm. find that's when a little bit of game, a little bit of structure is really helpful because it can kind of relieve what, whatever the hiccup is, it can put the focus on something else. It can put the focus outside of yourself. Again, going back to Atlantic, Atlantic thoughts, getting that focus outside of yourself on something else, um, allows for so much more freedom and play. In your, in the kind of artistic environments that you like to create, is there such a thing as too much freedom? Oh, yeah. How do you know when you've come up close to that line? As a as a performer myself, or in like when I'm actually managing one of our shows, yes, <laughs> great. I'll start with our shows because I think it's easier when the drive of the show lags, like when when that freight train is not when it starts to get off the rails. The but op- how can you gauge that? I mean, having had enough time and exposure to it to without thinking about it, trust your gut. I think honestly. So you do you go more by feel as opposed to a particular set of metrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's art, right? It's not, it's not computer programming, which is an art itself. I'm not trying to say computer programming isn't an art, but like, it's not a, it's not a calculus equation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's inherently subjective, um, and I think to try and make it objective gets away from the point and is unnecessarily challenging to me. Um, as a performer, the audience tells me. 
Do you find that to be a little intimidating or like always in the back of your mind in rehearsal because you're making these choices in the discovery, but you never know if these choices are correct until you get in front of an audience as a performer? That's why I hate rehearsal, man. Uh, it's not that I don't like playing the scenes. I think that's super fun. I like just enough rehearsal to know, to have the confidence and clarity with people to know, okay, great. What are we doing? What am I saying? What are we doing? Cool. And then after that, like I, there's only, there's only so much that I can personally learn really until there's an audience. Like obviously if I'm, if it's a traditional environment and it's like, we're doing a bunch of scene work and exploring this element of it, or like setting blocking and refining and all of that stuff. Of course, that's, um, of course I'm down in, in game for all of that, but I don't, in those circumstances, I'm just a hundred percent having to trust my gut and the director and whatever responses are coming from the creative team's table. And that, you know, that response tends to stop after three or four days of hearing the same scenes over and over again. Um, so it's really, it's really hard. And it's why I don't, to, to me, it's so different in a, acting in a rehearsal room or an audition room than it is with an audience. It just feels like, like I, I firmly believe, I think maybe, maybe, maybe a better way to answer that question about theater that I, that I love, in fact, is, um, an idea that is from a director named Mike Alfreds, who wrote a book called Different Every Night that Anya and I talked about, uh, on her episode, um, where he says he, he defines theater as, and this is my favorite definition of theater, when at least one audience member and at least one actor get together to create a shared imaginative reality. Hmm. Um, that that is the, that is, that is what theater is. And of course, theater can consume, can, can have much more, much more, much more, much more on it. But that is the, that is the, that is the bones. Um, and so I think when you don't have the half of that equation that is the audience creating your shared imaginative reality, it feels like a completely different thing to me. What in your mind is the ideal amount of rehearsal time? How much rehearsal time is just enough to get it right as opposed to doing it to death? I mean, again, it depends on if it, it depends on what the type of process is, right? Like our shows, our type of process of like freedom play, let's go. For me, it's a week as long as you're off book on day one. Mm-hmm. 48 hours of rehearsal in one week is, is enough to, to have that first preview still be real scared. And I think that's also really important of like, not getting set in choices until you have that other half of the audience there. That being said, you know, theaters that work in that model are few and far between. Um, and even those that do, it's usually a component of their season and not the whole season. So 90% of my professional contracts have not, that's not how those institutions function, right? Like your job is to serve the director's vision of the playwright's intent and your job is to show up and uh work under the constraints that that institution likes that that director likes um that serve other and so i think there's in though in in more quote unquote traditional environments i'm a big fan of three weeks i think much more than that and actors frankly are just lazy unless you're with a company that's really hard on it i'll be i think actors just don't do their homework and you spend a whole week of actors learning their lines in the rehearsal room. And I, I personally find it kind of insulting to the rest of the company. And I think, and that's, I, I learned that lesson big time in 2013 from an artist who I admire with every fiber of my being. His name is Ed Dixon. Uh, we were doing a show that was a one week rehearsal process, one week run. 
uh, about Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, he, his role was, you know, probably 50% of the text in this show. Massive, massive amount of text, dense, giant speeches. He was the detective interrogating Oswald. And they had, you know, they had, the director had, had asked us to be off book, but we weren't required to because there is, and I, and I totally respect this and think that this should be included. Equity, if you're asked to on a professional contract production to come in off book, you're required to be paid a week's wages to do that. And I think that is a wonderful union policy. And I understand the, the, the additional financial burden that could place on institutions until you think about the fact that I think if you do that, you can cut out two weeks of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. If you come in that prepared. And that's what Ed taught me on that day. So we came, you know, we had been asked to, but not required to. And I was, you know, I had maybe a grand total of like 85 seconds of text. I like kind of memorized them, but not really. I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll glance at them or whatever. I kind of know where they are and where they come in, but I didn't know my cues at all. Any of that stuff. Ed walks in. We have our, we have our, our meet and greet, our sit around. And, uh, the director, Casey was like, all right, uh, let's start the read through. Ed had had his script out on his, on his table, open, while we're talking. He starts the play. She says, let's start the read-through. He closes his script and goes. Hmm. And it was the, it was that moment. That's a, that's a big flex. Right? And I'm like. It's a real big flex. It's one of those moments. You remember when Bamit gave his guest class and he was like, there are two types of samurai. There's one type of samurai who comes in and writes poems about the, the cherry blossoms. And there's another samurai who comes in, cuts that other samurai's head off. Which samurai do you want to be? I don't remember <laughs> this at all. It's the only thing I remember from that masterclass, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, this is completely useless and very mammoth. All due respect. But also, it's like, that is one of my favorites. <laughs> I just think that's the funniest thing in the world. But conversely, I will say that that has kind of... I Now, actually, weirdly, that has that is frequently coming up in me and that idea of like... What type of actor do you want to be? And every time I work with an actor that I am inspired by or does something like that, and I'm like, I, I owe it to myself and the people that I am in a rehearsal process with to be that type of actor, not the type of actor that I currently am. Sure. Um, and that was, that was one of those moments. So sorry, round, round, roundabout way of saying that show had one week rehearsal because Ed was so incredible and so immaculately prepared. Um, that week was more than long enough in that process. Um, so I think it, it really depends on all of that stuff. Three weeks in a more traditional environment is kind of my sweet spot of if we're going to be blocking for a while and then doing scene work for a while and then going into tech for a week. Um, mm-hmm. Three weeks is is, is uh, enough to still make me not feel s- stuck, um, but to be able to execute within a uh, m- more extreme structure. Do you find that it is easier or more difficult now with the structure that you've implemented in rude grooms to find artistic satisfaction in traditional rehearsal environments and coming from the kind of coming from the kind of structure that you've built when you go into more traditional artistic environments and more traditional rehearsal rooms how do you go about finding that kind of artistic uh satisfaction when there isn't the same sense of freewheeling play and discovery you know, it's funny because like since we since we started Rude Groom, I mean, I had been very lucky to work in this way with a company called Passion and Practice. Uh, it was probably the first time I was really exposed to this type of work. And then with, you know, some of the workshops we've we've done here in New York with uh, 
uh, New York Shakespeare Company under David Baines. So honestly, so I can't really talk about Rude Grooms because since we've started Rude Grooms, I've only done, is that right? I think I've only done one contract in a quote unquote traditional environment, but, uh, they, it, it was, it was, it was a six week rehearsal process, but I felt completely free to work in the way that I work. Like there was not, um, it did not pose a problem at all. It was like, it actually like bizarrely, uh, and because of the cast that we had, like it was probably the most fun I've ever had in a long rehearsal process just because mm-hmm. it was so full of play, um, and, and finding new stuff. And it was a big enough cast and creative team that that thing I was talking about of missing the audience wasn't quite there. Like there was enough people in the room that it was kind of just like having a little black, black box version of the play every night in a way. Hmm. Um, so no, that one was not, I think that was only enhanced by um, the growth and, and things that we're discovering in the way that we're working. Um, before we came together as rude grooms, but I had been exposed to that and realized how much I loved that way of working. Uh, I had a few shows and no, I think, I think honestly it enhanced all of like it and kind of with that ed idea too. Like it just, it just meant that I was more prepared and knew how I wanted, what I wanted to get out of the process. Whereas before that I would just come in on day one and try and figure out what I wanted from there rather than being like, Nope, this is, this is how I like to investigate. This is how I like to explore. This is how I like to play. So, so being, being more prepared in a traditional environment makes it easier for you to more freely discover even within the confines of that structure. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And the only exception to that, but again, like I do think that this goes like the, when there was really, 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 really strict kind of manipulative puppeteering structure, that was super frustrating, but that's always frustrating. And I think it was in a way less frustrating because I knew how to try and find whatever, even if no one else saw the play that I and the scene partner would be having, I'd know how to try and find that with them, even if it was, you know, subversive, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, something that you mentioned earlier that I wrote down, and I wanted to make sure that we came back to it. You mentioned, uh, in one of your preferences for a shorter rehearsal process, you mentioned that it was important to you that the company on the opening night of previews is still a little scared. Yeah. Talk talk a bit about why that is important. One of the things that Anya was talking about in terms of flow state, right? The the amount of you need a certain amount of challenge and a certain amount of confidence and skill level. And if those things meet at the right point, you get into flow state. Mm-hmm. If it's not challenging enough or if it's too challenging or if you're not prepped enough um or don't have this the skill set yet to to actually execute the thing uh you can't get there so i think that's i think when i'm talking about fear it's about that flow state idea um that if you if you if it's if it's not challenging enough then in a way there's only so much growth and blossoming that you can have if i if i don't have that little bit of like I really might completely like mm-hmm. I could I could I could completely crash and burn this thing tonight. Uh that's what that's the kind of jet fuel that usually makes my creativity go to the the next level at least in terms of of my enjoyment and the stuff that I uh experience in those processes. So then you like to be a little afraid that you could mess it all up. I know so many people or you talk to so many people who hear that 
And it would just immediately and instinctively put them in their head because they just want to make sure they don't want to they don't want to mess it up. They don't want to let anybody else down. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested to hear how that balances with your with your sense as an artist where you hold yourself accountable so that you don't let other people down. So if there's this sense going into previews, there's like a little bit of fear that you might mess it all up right now. Yeah. How do you square that with your the obligations that you place on yourself for making sure that the rest of the company is served by your being there? And then how do you keep from going over and over in on yourself in your head to like double and triple check to make sure that you have everything locked down and that you don't mess anything up. How do you keep from just like folding in on yourself? Well, to answer the first part of that first, I think that that like that is the dichotomy that I'm talking about. It wouldn't function if it wasn't about, I have to succeed. Like I have to, I have to not just get through this and hit my marks. I have to, I have to, help the other people across from me have an authentic response. Um, and I find that I'm able to be much more uh, generous and playful and generative and give other people more to work with that's that's honest and surprising to me and hopefully will be to them when I'm at that, that strange threshold. Um, so I feel it is in fact that pressure that makes that entire concept work for me. Most people who've done a bunch of shows have seen those actors who are just like, yeah, I just come in and I just do a bunch of... Oh, vengeance! I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do and it's going to happen and there's no tether there's no there's no they don't have the other side of that they're just chaos they don't have the desire that it's not it's not the the beautiful tension between chaos and clarity and uh uh focus it's Mm -hmm. just the chaos like just as much as I don't like when you have just the clarity and focus and you're presenting a pre-prepared thing just the chaos is equally and in fact you know what no just the chaos i think is even worse just the chaos is dangerous for other actors just the chaos there's no chance you're going to tell the story well you'll probably win a tony award um but like there's no way you're going to tell the story well you have to have that that tension i think so i think that's Mm -hmm. so and that's like, how do you not let people down? By being the most prepared, the most prepared artist in the room. Mm-hmm. Come in, knowing your lines better than everyone else, being more word perfect, having clearer, uh, clearer, deeper, more specific um, actions or, uh, you know, intentions or objectives, whatever phrase you want to use. Know it back, know, know your cues better than anyone else does. Enter every scene to, to ignite the play up. I think to I think to synthesize what you were saying, I think the big takeaway, at least the thing that resonated most with me, is like you avoid that trap and you avoid that endless cycle of self doubt and potential internal paralysis by always making sure that you are prepared, making sure that you are the most prepared that you can be. Because even if you get to a point where Maybe there's a flash of internal panic. Yeah. You have the muscle memory. You have the internalization of everything that's supposed to happen. So even your autopilot, your sense of autopilot is even is prepared and is ready to go there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that's, I think that's very, very well stated. Thank you for speaking better than me. 
Great. So we are going to get ready to wrap this up soon. So Thank for God. those, of you, oh God, get that guy off, off of Daniel's show. Why did you have him those, as a guest? I'm going to take a couple of minutes of questions. If you have anything that you would like to ask Monty, whether it's professional, prefer, uh, personal, artistic, or otherwise, put them in the chat now. And I will uh, start filtering those as best as I can. I'm going to start with a question that was presented earlier from Amber Elby saying that this is from Monty saying, if you could star in or write any TV series past or present, which would you choose? And would you do a reimagining or somehow star in the original? Yeah, I want to be on Star Trek TNG. And no, I would not want to reimagine it. Uh, and, and I want to, you know, I want to, I'd, I'd want to be one of those folks that got to, that got to write and direct for it too. Would you want to star in it or just be in the writer's room? No, no, no. Star in it. Yeah. I want to be. Who I, would you, who would you want to be? Uh, Cause I, if it's not a reimagining, that means that you're take you're playing an existing <sighs> character. So who would you be? Wait, can I just be a new character? Nope. They write a character. Cause no. that would, that would be reimagining. This is the original. So whose spot are you taking? It's a hard question, right? Because it's like the roles I would want to play. I wouldn't want to do it without that human in that role. Blame me. It's Amber. She asked the question. Amber, I blame you. Um, <laughs> stop asking us such good, challenging questions. Um, <laughs> I've learned from my past mistakes and I'm pausing to reflect rather than just uh, mouth diarrheaing at you as in response. See, and there's growth, people. That's what the show's all about. Right. As I said, I want to be more like this actor than this actor. Thank <laughs> you for modeling that. Um, which I am going to put you on the time limit, though, because I we are know. approaching an hour. Yeah. Uh, don't think about it. Just go. Which one? You have to kill your darlings, so Riker. Okay. So, Star I'm Trek sorry. TNG... Montgomery Sutton starring as Riker. So sorry, also, Jonathan Frakes. I'm so sorry. I don't want to kill you. I just ha Daniel made me do it. Yep. It's my fault. I regret nothing. Also, follow up from Amber Elby, her 11-year-old daughter. I don't know if it's okay to say her name on stream, so I'm just going to refrain. Um, her 11-year-old daughter has a question that is probably the most important question you will answer of the evening. So choose your words carefully. <sighs> Cats or dogs? Dogs. Okay. And there we go. Have you met me or seen my energy? Like, am I more like a cat or a dog? <laughs> I'm going to say dogs. I love cats, but like, I got to pick one. I'm picking a dog. Okay. And there we go. We got but I love cats. Rope. It's not because I don't like cats. It's, it's just like, um, just nope, like Jonathan Frakes. Just I love it. Jonathan nope. Frakes and cats. Nope. But I'm going to choose your, Riker and dogs. Nope. That's it. Nope. No follow up questions. Okay. <laughs> that is going to be. Oh, I can. Okay. So I'm allowed to say it. So. Thank you, Alex, for yeah. the answer. To, thank you, Alex, for the question. I'm so sorry, Mr. Host Daniel. Don't you also need to do recommendations? That's what we're getting to, which is why I'm trying to wrap up the show. But before we get into recommendations, Monty, thank you so much for joining me on my show, This Would Know. Please let people know on the internet where they can find you. Well, they can find me at Montgomery Sutto on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Montgomery Sutton. And they can visit my website, MontgomerySutton.com. 
Thank you so much to my incredible guest, Montgomery Sutton. My name is Daniel Kemper. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper, and also on my website, Daniel Kemper Acts, Tune into another episode of This Wooden O live on Facebook next Saturday at 7 p.m., where I will very graciously give Monty back the reins of this show. What? And the ho- the guest star next week joining us for a conversation will be moi. What? Yes. How did I get him? Yep. I worked it out. I called in a couple of favors. Dude, thank you so much. Like, I never it's thought what, that I would get to interview Daniel Kemper. It's what I do, man. I thought it was too big of a stretch. This Dude, is, you're the best. This is, this is why you brought me on as, uh, as company manager. This is what I do. Yep. You're an excellent okay. casting director, Daniel Kemper. We will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, but we're not actually saying bye. No, we're not actually saying that was just a sign off. Okay, recommendations. What do you got this week? Um, I am recommending uh, Chikuti Iwuji, who is one of our very, very, very greatest uh, Shakespeare actors anywhere, uh, who we are very lucky to have uh, based in New York right now. Um, But I first saw him like way back, like when we were in school in uh, playing Henry VI at the RSC. he has started up an awesome thing called Bounded in a Nutshell, uh, and it, he's he's getting industry guests every week, and it's kind of a combined thing of him interviewing them and then having some days of workshops with them. Um, so, like, this week, or this upcoming week, I think it's Heidi Griffiths and Kristen Linklater, um, and it's just awesome, super cool. Uh, you can If you go to his uh, his Instagram page, which is... C H U K W U D I underscore I W U J I on Instagram. You can. There's a Google form right there. That's his. That's his link in bio, and you just sign up on that. Uh, and and he's posting stuff uh, as they're coming up. And it's. I haven't. I haven't. I didn't do the one last week. I'm hopefully going to sign up to do it this week. Uh, we've just been so crazy with the happy hours, but uh, it is amazing. Uh, my dear friend Michelle turned me on to it. And Chuck's incredible. So if you want to use this time, if you if you are looking for something to do now that we've been in quarantine for a bit, uh, I think you should check check out Bounded in a Nutshell, which could you would you? Awesome. This week, I am going to recommend, if you do not have it already, you should very seriously consider getting a subscription to Hulu so that you can watch Mrs. America, their new show that just started streaming this week, starring uh, Kate Blanchett, Rose Byrne, Uzo Aduba, um, and just an incredibly talented cast. It is about the attempt to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment into the U.S. Constitution uh, and the women's liberation movement of Ooh. the 70s and 80s. And it stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly, the major conservative opponent of the ERA. They've already released the first three episodes at the time of this recording and it is phenomenal the stagecraft and production is excellent and kate blanchett is a force of nature amidst an incredibly talented cast as well so i i cannot recommend it highly enough that is mrs america mrs america on hulu cool yes 
also uh just before we sign off your mom says uh amazing questions can't wait till next saturday blocking my very busy calendar thank you thanks all right guys we are going to move over to the patreon only room if you are a patreon subscriber you already know everything you need to do to get over there we're just going to talk all kinds of shenanigans in the post show i'm going to get a scotch and uh oh yes and then if you are not a Patreon subscriber and you, for whatever reason, are not going to become one tonight <laughs> so you can join us in the post show room, we will see you right here next Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Do not be late because if you do, I will judge you. And we'll see you before that on Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Is it Daylight Time? EDT, whatever. I'm really bad with all this stuff. EST. It's just EST. No, Eastern it's not. Yeah, I looked it up. I looked it up. I was corrected by Virginia Parish, and then I looked it up, and it's not EST. It's EST until the time changes, and it's EDT right now. I'm saying EST. Google it. I can. I don't believe in the Google. I'm That's just. Fair. I'm saying EST. Well, anyway, <laughs> whatever Eastern time you prefer, five o'clock that time, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Shakespeare Happy Hours are back. ShakespeareHappyHours.tv, or you can search for it on YouTube and subscribe to that channel to get notifications when they're going live. All right, guys, we will see you for the post show. And then if not, you got four other chances to see us this coming week. That's right. So, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.